Good morning again. If you have a Bible, you can open it up to the book of Luke. The book of Luke will be in Luke chapter 23 and 24 today. Luke 23 and 24. And we are continuing a series that we've called Meet Jesus. And we've been looking at snapshots of Jesus from the book of Luke, and then we're going to look at some as well from the book of Acts. So you kind of know uh, what our normal practice is around here if you're visiting. Uh, We like to look at the scriptures as the most uh, reliable and historic resources that we have about who Jesus is. We believe that they were actually inspired by God and they stand apart from ordinary resources as being uh, just what we need to see who Jesus is. And so as we've, as we've been looking at these snapshots of Jesus, we've been kind of waking up from these stories we tell ourselves. We all have things that we've learned here and there, ideas that we have about who Jesus is, and we need to rewire our minds and understand who Jesus really reveals himself to be. And we see that by looking into the scriptures. So as we celebrate the resurrection today on Easter Sunday, we want to look at the story from Luke of the death and resurrection of Jesus. One of the great things about the book of Luke is it's written in a very stark and realistic way. Um, The other gospel writers are also, we believe, true history, but they have a little more style and poetry to them. And so if you were to compare the different Gospels, you could say that while the other three Gospels are more like a movie, what we're used to with a theme and some good editing, um, still true, but poetically put together, the book of Luke would be more like a documentary. It would be more like a historical work that gives you all the details and even shows you the ugly places. And so that may not sound appealing, but the reason that should be appealing to you is because we all live in the real world. We all live in a world that's full of ugliness and brokenness, and we want to see how God, how specifically Jesus, gives us hope in this real world, this real world where we cry, where we hurt, where we ache, where we hurt each other, where we have uh, unjust work situations, where we struggle with disease, all these difficulties that, that make life and make the world we live in difficult. Jesus came into this world, this real world that you and I live in. What I'd like to do as we examine the hope that we find in the resurrection is I want to start with the death of Jesus. The death and resurrection of Jesus is central to our belief as Christians that Jesus changed everything, that he died on the cross for our sins, and that he rose from the dead, proving that he really has conquered sin and death for us. And so by union with Christ, by being one with him by faith, we have our sins forgiven through the cross, and we have new life through his resurrection. And so as you read the Bible, you start to see that those two pieces are never really separated. I want to start by reading the story about the death of Jesus and then show how that connects to the resurrection of Jesus. We're going to read from chapter 23, Luke 23, verses 44 through 49 verses 44 through 49. As the morning progresses, I'm going to read some other parts around the section as well. But we want to just start here with the the pain and the difficulty that those first disciples went through as they saw their Savior crucified. One of the things that a lot of people like to do at Easter time is to literally try to feel what it was like to be those first disciples. And so that's what I want to invite you into this morning, trying to connect with those disciples. What was it like for them to see their hope destroyed, and then to see their hope rebuilt. What was that like? 
And how does that live itself out in our own life today? So Luke 23, verse 44. It was now about the sixth hour, which would have been noon. And there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. So about three hours from noon to 3 p.m., there was darkness over the land. Verse 45, while the sun's light failed and the curtain of the temple was torn in two, then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for the spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, they returned home, beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. What I want to invite you into, whether you're someone that believes in Jesus or you're someone that's still asking questions, I want to invite you to move from that place of standing at a distance and watching these things in disappointment to moving into the place of having hope, real resurrection hope. Let me pray for us and ask God to help us see him this morning in the scriptures. God, we pray that you would help us to see you. We thank you that you reveal yourself to us. We thank you that you're not silent. We confess that oftentimes, Lord, we, we believe you are silent. We believe you've left us here. But we see in the story of Jesus that you've come after us. And so I pray that you'd help us to see your face in these stories of Jesus. I pray for those of us that are filled with doubt, for those of us that wonder, that, that don't believe, Lord, help us to have open minds. We pray that you would help us to consider, that you help us to see who you really are. Help us to doubt our doubts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, my son is a junior in high school, and so we've been considering colleges now very seriously. And spring break a couple of weeks ago, we decided to drive cross-country to look at a few colleges that he was interested in. Uh, many of you know, if you've been here at all, I've talked about my, my uh, trouble with cars. Um, I'm, I'm a dangerous person around vehicles. They don't last very long with me, but um, had a lot of car trouble, and so I thought I would be proactive and prepare our 13-year-old van for this 12-hour journey of driving across the country, right? So I, was, I was, uh, had my stuff together. I went and got the oil changed. I uh, had the tires balanced and rotated. I, I had the flux capacitor rechecked. I had the, uh, the timing belt changed out, uh, the water pump changed out. Did all these things to make sure that the vehicle was ready to go. And we embarked on this trip during spring break. We started driving. It was going to be a long journey, like I said, about a 12-hour journey. And uh, we were caravanning with some friends, and it went, it went great. For the first six hours, everything went great. Six hours of driving down the highway, everything was smooth, and then we get a call from the vehicle behind us, hey, the van is smoking. Like, I better check my rearview mirror. I look up, I guess I hadn't checked it in a mile or two, I look up at the rearview mirror and there's just smoke, like white and gray and black smoke pouring out from behind the vehicle. It seems to be billowing out the sides, out the back, it's just everywhere. And she was like, yeah, it stinks too. So <laughs> it smelled bad, it was smoking. And, and as I've said, I don't know a lot about cars, but I, I knew cars aren't supposed to smoke a lot, right? It's just a, like a basic thing I understand. And so 
we pull over to check the car, we pop open the hood, and we see this red fluid just spewed all over everything. It's all over the engine compartment. It's filled like the, the wheel wells are dripping with this fluid. And check it out. You know, it's kind of red. We figure this is uh, transmission fluid. Um, and again, if, you, if you're like me and don't know much about cars, it's bad for your transmission to break. It's like one of the worst things that could break on a car, right? And so apparently our transmission was just spewing fluid everywhere. We were in a small town, and we, we thought, well, I, I won't get to the positive thoughts. At first, <laughs> at first I just had despair, right? I mean, at first I just was heartbroken. At first I was like, God, oh, no, why? Like I tried. I tried so hard. I tried to get it to work. I tried to prepare. I tried to do the right thing. What, what is happening? I want to share this story with you specifically because even if your transmission didn't have problems last week like mine did, I know something is going wrong in your life because we're human beings. One of the things I I do as a pastor is I I meet with people and talk to people about the problems they're struggling with, and and I've talked with a lot of you, and and apparently all of you are normal human beings who are struggling with, with brokenness and pain in this world. It might be car trouble. It might be disease. It might be relationships, it might be financial difficulties that you're going through, but, but we're all struggling with, with broken things. And I think the invitation of the text this morning is, is for us to move our hearts from that despair point to having hope. And so that's what I want to invite you into this morning, and I don't think I can just make it happen. One of the things I, I've just been amazed with is I've looked at the scriptures and analyzed how people discovered faith is that God doesn't just beam that faith into you magically, right? But he allows us to discover it as a process. And I don't know all the whys of why God allows us to discover faith through the pains and the trials of ordinary life, but that's what he does. And I want to invite you to not give up and not just run to despair in those moments, but to have hope, to pray. One of the things that I'm learning in my prayer life is is when those moments come, I'm praying desperately, oh God, please fix my van. My wife is posting on Facebook, everybody please pray for our van. And we are desperately wanting Jesus to heal our van in that moment. But I've also learned to pray, Jesus, help me to see that you're enough, even if the van is a goner, right? Help me to see that you're enough in these moments. Because he doesn't always fix the van, but he offers us himself. And that's where the true hope lies. So I want to help you walk with me as I discovered this in the text, and hopefully you'll discover some of these same things as we look at the text of Scripture. And the first thing that I see is, as we wrestle with the resurrection hope of the first disciples, is that hope trusts. Hope trusts. We have an option when everything's breaking our life, when everything's going wrong, you have an option. You can condemn or you can trust. You can rail at God or you can reach out for mercy. You can say, God, why are you doing this to me? Or you can say, God, help me. And we see this in the criminals that were crucified next to Jesus. So I want to back up a few verses to just before the section that I already read. Look at chapter 23, verse 39. We have this story of Jesus being hung on the cross. The Jewish leaders didn't like what Jesus was doing. They turned him over to be crucified as an insurrectionist. Everybody around, as you read the story, knew he was innocent. 
but here are two criminals hanging next to him, and they know they're really guilty. And they're hanging next to this innocent man. And it says in verse 39, one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. I believe this is the same kind of thing we yell when things go wrong in our life. Like, aren't you, aren't you Jesus, aren't you Jesus? Aren't you the Savior? Can't you just fix all this? What's going on here? And so we see condemnation. Verse 40 says, But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. So, so one condemns Jesus, and the other says, I deserve condemnation. Jesus, help me. So kind of two basic responses we can have. We can have a, a response of pride. I did my stuff. God, where are you? Or we can have a response of faith, of trust. Hope trusts. Hope reaches out and says, will you help me? Will you meet me here? And whatever that difficulty is and whatever that circumstance is and whatever that pain is, it invites God into that situation. The story goes on and it says that this criminal who was trusting instead of condemning reaches out and says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Jesus said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Today you will be with me in paradise. It almost seems too easy, right? A lot of times our prayers are not answered with God saying, okay, today it's fixed. It's going to be done. But that was his answer. So we have two Two prayers we can pray, two things we can say to God. We can condemn or we can reach out and trust. I have a picture here of a finger pointing at someone. I believe this kind of symbolizes what the first criminal was doing. He was pointing fingers at Jesus. He was pointing fingers saying, aren't you the Christ? Why are you letting this happen to me? And I would admit I, I have those heart feelings as well, and I have to move because of the resurrection from condemnation to trust. One of my professors told me that the degree to which you love others shows how much you believe God loves you. And that, that told me I had a lot of work to do. That told me I had a lot of work to do. His idea, he called it the platinum rule. He kind of based it on the golden rule. You know what the golden rule is? Do unto others as you would wish that they would do unto you, right? So his platinum rule was we do to others as we believe God has done to us. So if you believe God loves you, if you believe God is generous, if you believe God is serving you, if you believe God has sent his son Jesus to die for you, to forgive your sins, to show grace to you, you're going to sacrifice for others. You're going to share with others. You're going to love others. And so here we see this contrast. And the question is, will we condemn or will we trust? Will we condemn a God who we see is always condemning us? Or we trust this God who we believe is showing grace, is showing mercy? He's proved he's showing grace and mercy to us through this Jesus dying in our place. As I said, as you read the story, it unfolds repeatedly. The judges that were involved said, this man's innocent. The guy hanging next to him, this man's innocent. People again and again saying, this man's innocent. This innocent man, the Messiah, the chosen one. He died in our place. He became the perfect lamb of God, taking our sins upon himself and giving us his righteousness. 
And so the hope of this story of who Jesus is, that gives us hope so that we can trust God, so that we can love other people. So when circumstances come, when circumstances are difficult, do you rail against God or do you reach out and trust? Do you ask him for help? Do you try to look smart? Do you try to look cynical? Do you try to look too cool to hope? Or in your desperation, do you call out to God and ask him to help you? Do you say, Jesus, meet me here in this difficulty? Do you ask Jesus for mercy? Here we see a a clear picture of this man saying, Jesus, have mercy on me. And Jesus says, it's done. You'll be with me today in paradise. This is the hope that we have in the gospel. And our hope is not that God always immediately fixes our circumstances. Our hope is in this resurrection. Where the story is headed is it's headed towards resurrection. It's headed towards this future where all things are going to be made right. And we know that it's coming because Jesus rises from the dead. Well, we'll see the story unfold. And the next thing that we'll see as the story unfolds is that hope moves in. Hope moves in. When Jesus was crucified, his followers and the women were standing at a distance. And so another decision that we're going to be uh, pressed towards if you're wrestling with God is, will I stand at a distance or will I move in and investigate? Will I stand on the sidelines of life spiritually or will I move in? Look at verse uh, 44, chapter 23, verse 44. Uh, We already read that part earlier. He died. It tells us the whole land was filled with darkness. It tells us in verse 45, the sun's light failed and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. It's this tiny little detail that is amazing. There's this huge, heavy curtain, not like a little thin curtain we would have had uh, at our house to cover the windows, right? But a huge, thick tapestry that was basically like a movable wall that separated the Holy of Holies, the inner sanctum of the temple from the rest of the courts. And that curtain was torn apart, signifying that God is busting out of that holy inner circle. And he's now truly dwelling with men. But now the wall of separation has been torn down and all people can come into the presence of God through Jesus. The death of Jesus now, instead of the death of the sacrificial lambs in the temple, is what enables us to enter in to the presence of God. The book of Hebrews is basically written all about this one little phrase. And you can read more about it in the book of Hebrews. But the story goes on, and Jesus called out with a loud voice saying, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He breathed his last. The centurion said, surely this man was innocent. All the crowds had assembled for the spectacle, and they started to disperse. They went home beating their breasts, which is how they would grieve over this horror of this innocent man being killed. And it says in verse 49, all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. They stood at a distance watching these things. So I now want to contrast that with what happens next. Some of us, sometimes, we stand at a distance watching. We're scared to move in closer. Verse 50 says, there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man. So he was a member of this council of Jewish leaders who had just killed Jesus. He was a part of that tribe. He was a part of that group who hated Jesus, but it said he had not consented to their decision and action, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. So he's a part of the group. Everybody else in his group hated Jesus, but he disagreed with the choice they had made. Verse 52 says, this man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus, and he took it down 
and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the beginning of preparation. The Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and, and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. So what's happening here is right before the Sabbath starts their day of rest, it would have started the evening before the Sabbath day, um, he gets the body down in time and wraps it in a linen shroud and puts it in the tomb, but he hasn't been able to uh, put the proper, the way they would honor the body with perfumes and ointments and oils, and that's the, the, the normal burial ceremonies that they would go through. So they haven't been able to do the full, the full nine yards, do the whole thing here of, of uh, anointing the body. And so he at least gets into the tomb, and then the Sabbath starts, and they can't do anything more. They wait. The women are waiting. The women have some spices ready to go. And then it says in chapter 24, verse 1, they go now to anoint the body. It says in chapter 24, verse 1, on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And so what I want you to see is this contrast from the disciples standing at a distance, watching everything fall apart, to now these people moving in to care for his body, still not really sure what's going on. They still haven't fully discovered the resurrection. They're moving forward. They're taking next steps. They're going to care for his body. This was the Savior they had trusted in. They don't really understand what's happening. And so I want to encourage you with this. Sometimes you just take next steps. Sometimes you move in in faith, even though God hasn't, he hasn't revealed everything to you yet. And I want to encourage you to take those risks. I like to say this a lot. One of my favorite books is Tim Keller's book, The Reason for God, where he challenges us, if we're skeptics, to doubt our doubts. Don't be so sure of your faith in Jesus not being the Savior. Be willing to examine things. Be willing to move in and and doubt your doubts about God. Be willing to examine your skepticism. Be willing to pick it apart. Be willing to move into the tomb. Be willing to ask those questions. Take those next steps. Don't just decide it without fully investigating. And I think that's the story we see here. We see people standing on the side, and we see people moving in and investigating more. If you were out for a hike and you saw a dark and scary cave, what would be your first reaction? Would you say, come on, kids, let's go in the dark and scary cave? Or would you say, mm, I don't know? Well, that's kind of a personality test. Probably it's a 50-50 split, right? Some of you are just crazy and you would go in. But a lot of us would be like, mm, I don't know. I'm not sure about that. It could be filled with rattlesnakes or, you know, monsters of some other sort. We have this movement from caution to risk. One of my favorite uh, parables of Jesus is in Matthew 25. It's the parable of the talents. It's the parable of the talents. And in Matthew 25, we see in the parable of the talents, different people giving, being given different amounts of silver from a master. And Jesus says, one guy's given this much silver, he invests it for his master, and he brings him back, and he makes a lot of money for his master. And master's like, well done, good and faithful servant, way to go gives some to the other servant. He invests it. He makes more. He brings it back. And he says, way to go. You took what I gave you and you did something with it. And then this third servant takes it and he buries it. 
And he says to the master, well, I buried it because I knew that you are harsh, unfair, and you take what doesn't belong to you. It's an interesting posture to have towards your master. And the master said, okay, well, then I will deal with you according to what you believe about me. And Jesus says, this is a parable for our faith in God. That we either spend what he's given us with reckless abandon, willing to take risks because we believe God's gracious, or we hoard and protect ourselves and basically waste our life because we think God's not fair. Is the world broken? Yeah. Is the world hard? Yeah. Have a lot of you been through worse things than I could ever imagine? Yes. And God comes to us in this real world. As I said, Luke uncovers all this ugliness, the way the world really is. He's not, he's not painting over things. He says, yeah, this world really is hard. Yeah, there really is death. Yeah, there really is disappointment. But Jesus meets us there and invites us to move in to faith, invites us to move in to risk, to spending what Jesus has given us for his glory, your, your time, your motivations, your, your gifts, your resources, what, whatever it is, as you have real hope in the resurrection that the here and now is not all there is, but that Jesus' resurrection promises us a future and a hope. Someday all things are going to be made right, so that means we can live through the difficulty and the pain and the brokenness of now with more reckless abandon, saying, I know, I know Jesus has got me, and I know everything's going to be okay. So I can make my point in this life, the spending of myself for others. Because I believe Jesus spent himself for me. Jesus moved into my neighborhood. And he loved me when I was unlovable. And so I'm going to move out and love others. Hope, hope moves in. So my question is, is that happening in your life? So as I joked earlier, I mean, some of you are more cautious than others. So it's going to look like something different in different people's lives. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be shaped according to your personality. But are you willing to spend what Jesus has given you for others? Are you willing to move in? Are you willing to take risks? Or are you going to stand back? Are you going to stand on the sidelines of life? The resurrection challenges us to spend our life, to live our life, to move in, to poke into that tomb, to investigate to ask questions, even if we haven't fully discovered the answers yet. Jesus will show up there for us. So Christians, I would appeal to you to to be a person that moves in, that takes risks and investigates. Non-Christians, I would appeal to you, ask more questions. Don't give up. Don't just believe the, the doubts that you read in the latest blog or whatever your professor said. Ask more questions. Move in. Investigate. Poke around. Be willing to doubt your doubts. Be willing to investigate this Jesus. The last thing that we see is that hope remembers. Hope remembers. Um, What happens in my life is I know these things to be true. God reveals these things in my life. I have incredible faith. I have these spiritual highs. um, And then I kind of fall back into the mundane. And I begin to forget. And I need to be reminded. And so part of what we do as the people of God is we just gather to remind ourselves that we can trust Jesus. That's the purpose of gathering, so that we can declare that Jesus is trustworthy and remind ourselves when we forget. And we see this unfold here in the story. Look again at chapter 24, verse 3. It says, When they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. 
While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee. Read that part again. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee. The angels are saying, he already told you this. Like, did you forget everything that Jesus said? He said he was going to suffer and die and on three days rise again. Go back and read the Gospels as you have time this semester. And what you'll see is that again and again, Jesus told us that. We just keep forgetting. We keep forgetting. And that's what happened to the first disciples. Verse 7 says that the Son of Man must be delivered in the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. They're like, oh, yeah, we forgot, right? And again, I hope you you see that these first disciples were just like us. They were just like us. In in some ways, we could say they're worse than us, right? Because they were closer to it than we are, and they still forgot. Jesus told them, this is what's going to happen, and they forgot. It goes on in verse 9, it says, Returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles, but these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. One of the things that makes the gospel sources believable is that God uh, doesn't sugarcoat things. He says the first witnesses are going to be women. But you know what? In Jewish society in the first century, women weren't considered valid witnesses in court. I'm sorry, ladies. I think that was wrong. Okay, just so you know. I don't agree with how they ran their court system, but they didn't believe that women were valid witnesses. They couldn't be trusted. You know what? Romans thought basically the same thing. And so if, if you were going to put together a hoax and put together propaganda materials to convert the entire world to Christianity, you're not going to write your story that way. That's not how you're going to tell a lie. It's just one more of the many marks that show us that this story is true to life because it's not propaganda. It's not trying to twist things. It's not trying to persuade us. It's just telling things like it is. Yeah, you know what? The first witnesses that Jesus' uh, resurrection was revealed to, it was women. And that doesn't stand up in a court of law. But that's how it happened. And even Peter, the leader of the church, right? He doesn't believe him. Look again at verse 11. These words seemed to them like an idle tale, and they did not believe them. Verse 12, but Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. Hope remembers. We're going to forget again and again. And Jesus is calling on us to remember what we keep forgetting. When you forget, don't just sit there and beat yourself up and say, I'm so stupid, I forgot. Remember. Remind yourself. Go back into the tomb. Go go back in and investigate one more time. Ask the questions all over again. Say, Jesus, help me to see your goodness. They remembered. They celebrated. I love this verse. After he investigated, it says he went home marveling at what had happened. Peter was marveling because he finally remembered. Again, that's why we gather as the people of God. We gather to remind ourselves so that we can marvel again. And that implies that we forget, and we forget often. So I want to give you a little slack 
that you and me and the first disciples keep forgetting. We keep forgetting that Jesus has conquered sin and death. He told us he would, and then we doubt it. When the car breaks, when the relationship breaks, when the job breaks, we say, Jesus, where are you? Have you abandoned me? No, he rose from the dead, and he promises us that we will enter into the resurrection ourselves. Does that mean we enter into it right now today? No, it means we live now in a different way. We live with hope. We have a hope that remembers that Jesus has come for us, that that we look forward to this day when he's going to make all things right. There's a song that's been playing a lot on on the radio lately, and it's it's catchy and kind of gets stuck in my head. I find myself humming it over and over again. It's a, a song by 21 Pilots. I think the name of the song is Blurry Face, um, and he's, he's talking about this push-pull between childhood, when everything was nice and easy, you got to play, and, and being an adult, where you worry about things, where you worry about what people think of you. I, I think I'm not, I, I don't know these guys personally, but I think what they're saying with the blurry face idea is that your identity gets confused, right? We start to forget who we are. We start to struggle with who we are. We start to forget that everything's going to be okay, that God loves us, that we're children of God, and we start to forget and fall into living like orphans, thinking we have to scrap and fight to get ahead and we can't trust God to care for us. The song says, I was told when I got older all my fears would shrink, but now I'm insecure and I care what people think. There's like this carefree thing you can live through in childhood, and then you grow up and you're like, yeah, I'm too smart to be carefree now. I know really I'm an orphan and I got to take care of myself. I know really there's no God the Father watching out for me. And you start to forget who you really are. He says, my name's Blurry Face and I care what you think. My name's Blurry Face and I care what you think. He says, wish we could turn back time to the good old days when our mama sang us to sleep, but now we're stressed out. Song goes on, talks a lot about other things as well. But the idea is that, that all of us walk through that, that stress, being pushed and pulled in different directions. Are you going to remember who you are? Are you going to be, as Jesus says, like a little child that comes to him in trust? Are you going to be like an adult who really lives as an orphan, thinking we're all on our own, God doesn't care, he's abandoned us? The scriptures invite us to come to him as a little child, to have, as Jesus says, the faith of a child, to go back to the good old days when we thought we were taken care of because we see in the resurrection, we see in Jesus that we are taken care of, that Jesus has conquered sin and death for us in the gospel. How do we remember this? Well, we remember it in the words of God, in in the story itself. The messengers, the angels told the story again. Hey, did you forget? Jesus already told you that. Let me tell you again. And then they go and investigate it, and they see it again for themselves. There's this telling and retelling of the story, and that's what we do when we gather to study God's word together. As, as God's people, we come together, and we're just retelling ourselves the story. We're saying, oh, yeah, that really is who he is. It's true. I forgot, but it's true. He is, he's there for me. We also get reminded by each other, right? Community. We, we encourage one another as family. We come together, and we say, no, it's true. And if we're like those first disciples, some of us say, no, the resurrection happened. And the others are like, I don't believe you. That's an idle tale. And then we come back and we're like, okay, you were right. And that's what community looks like sometimes. We encourage each other. Sometimes we believe, sometimes we don't. But the calls that we would remember 
what God is doing in the world. Another way that we see this reality unfolding is in the breaking of bread. We have a book for sale in the hallway called A Meal with Jesus. And it talks about how you see this theme again and again throughout the Gospels that Jesus was always having parties and meals with people. He was always eating with people. And that's a really important part of the Christian tradition that we just eat together, which makes me really happy because I love to eat. It's one of my favorite things in the world. And God has in just the simple experience of eating, he gives us a little token to remind us that he cares for us, that he is our true food and true drink. So everything we ta- every time we taste something good and drink something good, it is to remind us that he's really the one that satisfies us. Man cannot live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. And we are reminded when we eat, when we gather together, when we have a party, when we have a celebration, that Jesus is the real party. Jesus is the real food. He's the real drink. I found a, a picture of uh, some models around the table having this kind of stylized dinner party. You know, that's what all of our dinner tables look like, right? Perfectly matched colors, a beautifully well-appointed table. Everything's gourmet and delicious. Everybody's happy. Um, Okay, that might be a stretch. But when we do gather, when we laugh around the table, that's one of the ways that God gave us to remind us of him. And it's such an important piece that Jesus actually made this one of the enduring ways for us to remember him. So we have this informal just gathering and eating as a reminder of who God is, but, but we have this formal thing we call communion. And, and different church traditions do it in different ways, but every church tradition does it, right? We eat the bread and we, we drink the cup and we say, Jesus is the real bread. He's the real cup. He's our life. He's the one that takes care of us. He's the one that, that loves us. Well, I want us to, to wrap up so we can enjoy communion together and see Jesus in the breaking of bread. We're, we're told... Uh, later on, there's a story where Jesus shows up to these people on the road to Emmaus, and he's revealing himself to them in the scriptures. They can't see that it's actually Jesus, but he shows that he's in here, which is a great reminder for us. Sometimes we wish Jesus was just standing there face to face, but in that moment where Jesus' disciples were face to face with Jesus, he was like, you don't really need to see my face. You need to see me in here. And he taught them the scriptures. And we we're told that their hearts burned within them. And that they didn't actually finally see him until the breaking of bread. And then that's repeated throughout the book of Luke. But it, Luke, it becomes a theme that just kind of keeps coming back around. You see in Luke again and again that when the disciples would break the bread together, they would see Jesus. When they would read the scriptures, they would see Jesus. When they would gather in community, they would see who he really is. And that's what we're trying to do today. We're trying to remind ourselves of how good Jesus is. Um, I was encouraged after the first service, I should tell the end of the story with the van. Um, God did miraculously heal our van, so we were very thankful for that. Uh, thank you for all, all the people that prayed on Facebook. It, it, it turns out the mechanic that we took it to said, you know, it was actually just this plug that's a heat vent, and it got clogged, and then pressure built up, and then it exploded and shot transmission fluid everywhere. But transmission seems to work just fine. And we're like, wow, that's awesome. So I share that happy ending with you, hopefully to encourage you. Um, but I, I hesitate to share it with you because, again, we live in this real world where we don't always have happy endings, right? And my prayer, my original prayer, is the same prayer I would ask you to pray, and that is, 
Of course, Jesus, heal this relationship, heal this van, heal this body. But if you don't, will you help me to see that you're enough? Will you help me to see that you are enough, that, that you are the resurrection and the life? So my hope is in you. It's not in the now, it's in the future, and it's in Jesus. That's my prayer for all of us. Let me pray for us, and then we'll respond in communion and worship together. God, we thank you that you've revealed yourself to us in Jesus. We pray, we ask, we beg that you'd help us to see you, that we could, we could taste and see how good you are. We thank you that you've, you've given us ways to do this, that you haven't left us in silence, but you speak to us through the scriptures and through communion and through the singing of these songs and through the reminding of each other. They're just the simple things of life, gathering together and having parties and celebrating your goodness. Help us to, to see you. Help us to remember you. Help us to hope in your resurrection. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.